Hey, good morning, family. Good to see you guys again. And it was so good to get a couple of weeks away and to be able to rest and make some memories. It was awesome. Uh, hey, I want to thank our elders, too, uh, real quick before we get going. Uh, these guys really make sure that uh, I'm, I'm rested regularly. And so I want to thank you guys for that. You really take care of me and my family. And I want to give a shout-out also to Cal and to Scott. I don't know where Scott is, if he's here. He's on vacation. There you go. Good. Hey, those guys, appreciate, appreciate what you did, Cal and Scott. When, if you're listening to the podcast, I uh, appreciate what you guys do. Keeping us in the Word the last two weeks. So uh, here's where we are right now. We are walking through a series in the Psalms called Soundtrack. Every summer we take some of the Psalms and, and we, we take a peek at them. And our scripture reading today is going to come from the 80th Psalm. And what we're going to be talking about today is God's discipline. I know, everyone's favorite subject, right? We're going to talk about God's discipline. And, uh, and so what I want you to do um, is I really want you to dial in right now. I really want you to give your full and undivided attention to the reading of God's Word because God's about to talk. Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought us a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Holy God, we come into your presence thanking you for being our God and, and speaking to us. And Lord, I just want to begin by just praying for the children that are going to their classes and those that are volunteering and giving of their time and their energy. They have thought about the lesson. They have prayed over the lesson. 
and um, Lord, they are ministering uh, the good news of God to these children. We pray that you would just open up their hearts to receive that and understand that and pay attention and take away distractions so they would know you and live. And God, we pray that uh, your word has been read. You have spoken. Lord God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear what you want us to understand today. Just, just clear out all this crud that's in our ears, all the noise. Let us hear you today and live. God, I pray that your spirit would be here in a special way. Lord, help me speak in a way that is bold and clear and plain and helpful. Lord, do right now, do what only you can do, and you do it so well. Change our hearts to love you. Amen. Amen. In any meaningful relationship, this discipline plays a vital role in that relationship. Whether we're talking about a, a teacher-student relationship, whether we're talking about a parent-child or a coach-player relationship, discipline is what enables us to continue to keep that relationship going. And in fact, it actually en enables us to deepen that relationship. It actually makes it more meaningful of a relationship. Without both formative discipline and corrective discipline, the relationship will ultimately disintegrate. It'll become non, not really any kind of a meaningful relationship. We, we've talked about this before uh, back in our Jonah series. If you were here, you can go online and listen to those if you want later. But there are two types of discipline, generally speaking. There is formative discipline and there is corrective discipline. A formative discipline is what shapes us into the kind of person that can actually keep that relationship. And so, for example, like the coach, coach, uh, he makes us run laps. The coach has us memorize terms and the team plays that our team is going to run to show up for practice, lift weights day in and day out and do our homework, Right. This discipline shapes us. It forms us into that kind of person that we need to be in order to excel in our role in the relationship. And so when we don't run the plays that the coach calls, we say, you know what? I'm going to run my own play. I'm going to get to the line of scrimmage and just call an audible every time I'm up there. When we don't run the plays the coach calls, when we don't show up for practice, I mean, we're talking about practice, right? Do I really need to go to practice? Just practice. When, when we don't do this, when we stonewall the coach, instead of listening to direction, what's the coach do? He benches us, right? Puts us on the bench. Ride the pine for a little while. He docks our paycheck. Or has us run stairs until our legs cramp. Why? Because we're not playing our role in the relationship. You know, like with our mouth, we say, I'm on that team. I'm claiming the name. That's my team. I'm on the team. But our actors are showing, I'm really not on the team. I'm, I'm, I'm here for me. I'm here for me. That's my team, team me. So the coach corrects us. He corrects us so that we don't get cut from the team. As believers, brothers and sisters, we are in a covenant relationship with 
God. He is our God. We are his people. Those, those are the roles. That's the relationship. And since God has initiated this, since God has graciously saved us, he sets down the rules. He sets out the roles for the relationship. He says, look, this is how you're going to flourish best in the relationship. This is how it works best for us. So, so here's the question today. What happens when through our continuous disobedience, we force God to move from formative discipline to corrective discipline? Like, what, what happens? How do we navigate God's corrective discipline in our life when we feel his hand upon us in that way? Well, Psalm 80 tells us that we need to pray our way through God's corrective discipline by faith. This is how we navigate that space in our life. We pray our way through God's corrective discipline by faith. And so, first thing that, that we need to understand is this. We need to pray that God would turn our hearts back to him. We need to pray that God would turn our hearts back to him. Let's look right here at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the word that's translated here, restored, is, is actually the word that means, in Hebrew, means to turn or to turn around. So Asaph, he's the one that wrote this psalm. Asaph is praying, turn us around and turn us back to you, O God. This is his prayer. By asking God to turn, our heart, turn the hearts of the people back to God, Asaph is admitting that he's broken the relationship. The people of God have turned their backs on the Lord that has saved them and rescued them. He's admitting that they've, got, they've done God dirty. They've done God wrong. He's admitting that. He's admitting that they deserve the discipline that they are experiencing from the hand of the Lord. And as we go further on down this psalm, we'll see at least two ways that God disciplines the people that he loves. It's right here in verses six through, uh, four through six. This is still, remember, he's still, still a prayer. He's praying, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? So this has been going on a while. He's been talking, talking, talking. God's not talking back. Verse five, you fed them with the bread of tears. God says, you're hungry? Here, you can eat this. It's tears. And that will fill you up. You've given them tears to drink in full measure. They've drank so many tears they can't drink anymore. Verse 6, you make us an object of contention to our neighbors. Our neighbors don't like us. They're fighting us. And our enemies laugh among themselves. These people are a joke, these people that believe in God. They're a total joke. One of the ways that God disciplines us is by being silent. God says, you know, you're going to consistently ignore my word. You don't really care about what I'm saying. You're going to consistently ignore my warnings to your own detriment, to your own demise. Okay. Okay, loved one. You don't want to hear me talking? Okay, I won't talk. I won't talk anymore. Just be quiet. God corrects us by withdrawing his presence from our lives. We don't want him in our life, so he gives us a taste of what that kind of life feels like. Do you really want that? I'm just going to make sure you really want that, so here you go. Here's a taste. Another way that God disciplines us is through our enemies, the psalm says. 
And this could be physical enemies, this could be spiritual enemies, emotional enemies, but God removes his protective hand. He just lets our enemies, his, our enemies chew on us a little bit. Hassle us. Add discomfort to our lives in order to bring us to our senses. That's what he's doing. Like to say that you know God and to say that he's good and to say that's my God and then to live like I don't really want to hear anything he has to say about anything. That's insanity, right? Like you know that's insane, right? And he's doing this to bring us back to our senses. That's crazy. But you don't even know it's crazy. So I'm going to have you see that. Come back. I want to add an important caveat. This does not mean that every time that we get sick or, or we lose our job or we have a flat tire on our way to the Renegers game, okay, that does not mean <laughs> that we have done something that God's disciplining us, okay? It's not like a one-to-one ratio every time. Sometimes, you know what? It means that we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world and things break. It means that if we claim God's name, if we claim to be worshiping the Lord, but we consistently live like we don't really want to have any kind of relationship with him, we are removing ourselves from our ally. We're removing ourselves. We're exposing ourselves to our enemy in a way. You see, the purpose of God's discipline is not punitive. It's restorative, family. That's the purpose of it. The purpose is to stop us from going down a path of destruction. And he's throwing logs in the road and speed bumps in the way. Stop going that way. It's not going to go well for you. There's basically two ways that we are going to respond. You and I are going to respond when we have the hand of God's discipline in our life. There's really only two ways, as as far as I can figure out, that we're going to respond to this. One way is the wrong response. That's to toughen up and get angry. How dare you discipline me? I'm tough. We basically tell God, you know what? I can handle that. That doesn't bother me. Not going to change my mind. I can take it. Give me your best shot. I'm fine without you. The, the, The right response, however, is this, is to be sorrowful over what our stubbornness is doing to us and to the people that we love around us. The right response is to sorrow. That's what I tell my kids when when I have to discipline them. Don't get angry. Get sorry. Get sorry. That's what what the word sorrow means. I'm sad that I pushed you to this, that you had to do this. It should make us well up with tears. I've been thinking about this. When was the last time I actually had tears about the sin in my life? When did actually bo- last time it actually bothered me? Not that I did that, but that I actually wanted to do that because it, it started in here. The right response is to admit that God's discipline bothers you. It's like causing a problem for you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good response. Your silence when I pray, God, it bothers me. Your lack of blessings in my life, it bothers me. Your lack of protection from my enemies, it bothers me. And I don't want to live one more day without you. My life without you is a wreck. I don't like that. Turn my heart back to you. 
Asaph is responding the right way. He's praying. He's telling God, your discipline has worked. It's medicine in my life. There's good medicine. I didn't get food. What was his food? Tears, right? What did he get? Medicine. And sometimes we need medicine. And he got it. And he said, thank you. It's healing me. It's softened my hard heart. I've received your discipline. Now, please stop. You've cut me down to size, Lord. Now, please stop. Turn my heart back to you so that my stubbornness won't kill me. Because I can't do that. I need you, oh God, to do that. Uh, many, many years ago, when I was a youth pastor, there was a girl that came back to uh, the youth group after her first year at the university, her first year at college. She was away from home with her family. And see, the thing with her is she had, uh, she had a full-ride uh, scholarship, everything paid for through basketball. She was really good in high school basketball. She was an outstanding player, in fact, all through high school. Uh, she was a leader on the team, team captain, a lot of influence, and she was on track to break records at, at the university. This guy was great. Future was bright for her. Her life centered around basketball and the future that it was going give to give to her. And she claimed to be a Christian. So people knew her as a believer in God and a believer in Jesus. But she didn't really want to have much to do with God. She didn't really care a lot about what God thought. She suffered a serious injury her very first season at school. And uh, this injury ruined her ability to play ball competitively. It was over. She might be able to play a pickup game recreationally. And so here's what's going on. Overnight, guys, she lost everything that, that for her meant the world. Like, imagine that. Overnight. One night it's this way. Next, night it, next day it's that way. She lost her team. She lost those friends. She lost her scholarship. Now her future at the university is even in jeopardy. How am I going to pay for all of this? This is a major like, life trajectory change for her. She lost the game that she devoted uh, hours and hours and hours and hours of her life to. She lost her future plans and had to scrap all that and come up with something different. And, and I remember coming back to the group, and she's sharing this with another uh, a group a group of girls had a breakout session and she's sharing this story and she said that she was, at first she was really angry about it, but that over time she realized that God was disciplining her. He had tried a lot of other ways and she just, just would ignore it, ignore it. She realized God was disciplining her and th she basically said this, you know what? I lost basketball, but I gained God and I'm glad. And I remember she smiled while she said it. That smile is stuck in my brain all these years later. And I thought, what an amazing 19-year-old. That's incredible. She responded to God's discipline by eventually receiving it as something that was saving her from distraction. His discipline had turned her heart from what she once thought was her ultimate savior, her ultimate source of life towards God, who's her true source of life. Guys, God wants us to pray this way to him as well. He wants to hear these prayers. And I don't know where everybody is right now, but maybe that's you. Maybe you are experiencing the Lord's discipline in your life right now. The stress is piling up. 
The troubles are piling up and they're not going away. The things that used to give you comfort, they don't comfort you like they used to anymore. The things you used to escape into, you don't escape because your troubles are even there now. They follow you into that escape. Maybe that's you. You need to ask God to turn your heart back to him, the one who is your life and the one who loves you. Confess to him that he has cut you down to size instead of acting that it's not happening, acting that you're tougher than God, and it's not really bothering you. You need to say, you know what? It's bothering me. You need to sorrow over the, that it's gotten to this point. Express your sorrow to him. Express your misery to him. This is how we acknowledge that there is a God, and I am not him. All right, this is, this is the prayer that God wants you and I to pray. Turn my heart, oh God, back to you that I might be saved. Second, we need to pray that God would turn his face towards us. See, we don't just pray. Asaph doesn't just pray, turn my heart back to you, but he says, God, turn your face towards me. Even when we are in the midst of God's disciplining hand, we can boldly ask for mercy. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. It's right here in the text. Let's go verses 14 through 16. He says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Just like if the sun were to go out, bad things would happen to life on earth. When God hides his face from us, we get reduced. Our life gets reduced. We're not flourishing like we used to. Asaph describes his experience of discipline like a huge, beautiful, far-reaching, strong grapevine that's been cut down to size. So it's like, you know, we're still alive, technically, (laughs) We're alive, but the fruit stripped off. And the leaves that covered it and protected it, they're stripped off. And even some of the branches have been chopped off. And it's just down to the trunk. It's just down to the stalk of this big, thick vine. You guys know it. We used to live in the Ozarks, and the Ozarks are known for their ice storms and their freezing rain. Uh, in the wintertime, which causes widespread power outages. And usually what happens before winter hits uh, MoDOT goes around and they carefully trim all the, the, the branches over the power lines in the neighborhood and in the center of town. Well, in 2007, we had a major, major ice storm. There was up to half a million people that were uh, without power and they were without heat for weeks. It was a pretty serious deal. Uh, temperatures were dropping well below zero and over 40 deaths were connected to that particular ice storm. A lot of people got affected. We did too. The transportation department had to call in national guardsmen and also volunteers from the surrounding states because there was just that much damage. They were overwhelmed with the amount of damage that had been taken care of and and, and lines that needed to be restored. So what do you think happened next year? Next year, MoDOT butchered all the trees in town. Okay? Guys, it was a massacre of the trees. I just want you to picture this. There was none of this like, cute little minimal trimming. Uh-uh. They said, forget that. They cut the branches right to the trunks of the tree. Picturing this, 
beautiful trees, beautiful oaks and maples that give off all these flowers in the fall, usually. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees look like they had like little lollipop sticks coming out of them, all right? The trees were still alive, but they didn't even resemble trees anymore. The trees were still alive, but they didn't resemble trees anymore. They, they looked like naked, ugly, stripped-down coat racks. That's what they looked like. And they were just left that way. Hundreds of them were just left that way, like a big scar all over Springfield. We just saw it every time we go down the road for years. Asaph is praying passionately, Lord, you've brought me low, but please do not leave me low for the rest of my life. You've cut me down to size so that I might have life and come to my senses, but please restore me. Don't leave me this way the rest of my life. Don't leave me like an ugly stump. Turn your face towards me. Look at me. See me. Have regard for my life. This is bold prayers, isn't it? He's saying, I'm asking you to bring me back to life. Revive me. Restore me. Let there be fruit again on this vine. Let there be leaves again. Let me have a fall where the, the, the leaves are changing color again. It's beautiful. So that I could be saved. Brothers and sisters, when we have truly received God's discipline, it is not enough for us that God just stops his correction, as great as that is. But that's not enough for us. We want to see his face again, do we not? We want to experience him again, life with him again. And God invites us to boldly ask for his mercy even when we're experiencing his discipline. Isn't that nuts? That's wonderful. He invites us to pray like this, Lord, you have brought me low, but don't leave me low forever. You have cut me down, but don't leave me that way. Turn your face towards me. Give me life. Let me, oh, I want to see you smiling on me again. I want to feel your warmth of your love again in my life. I miss you. Like, I miss you. Let me flourish. I don't know what, maybe some of you are thinking this. I was, how can we pray such things from the very Lord that we've turned our back on time and time again? Like, how do we, how are we doing this? Like, how can we have confidence that God would actually hear and answer our prayers for mercy after we've broken covenant with him? We have confidence the same way that Asaph had confidence that God would hear his prayers because he's praying with confidence. And it's this. We believe that we are united to the one that has God's favor. We believe that we are united to the one that has God's favor. When we are actually experiencing God's correction, and maybe you've experienced this, there can come this time when you get discouraged in the midst of it. Anybody, amen? You get discouraged. You're like, like, why even bother asking him for mercy at this point after what I've done? Like, God knows that I can't keep any promise that I might make to him. Like, he knows that I can't keep covenant with him, so why would he, why would he give me mercy now? So why bother asking? We get kind of discouraged. So we need to know this at those times. The scriptures instruct us plainly to ask for his mercy. And so how do we ask for mercy by faith. We try to grab hold of that mercy by 
faith that God has made a way for us to be brought back to him. We'll get some context by reading 16 through 18 again. So he says, they, so I'm about the enemies, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, here's the contrasting word, but, they got this, but, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. You've made him strong for your own glory. Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and then we will call upon your name. God, we need you to act first so that we will respond. We need you to give us grace, and we will, it will change our lives. So let me rephrase what he's saying and explain kind of what it, that means for us, okay? Asaph is basically saying, verse 16, our enemies that you're using have cut us down. I'm asking that you punish them with their disfavor because what they did was wrong. So punish them with your disfavor, verse 17, but let your favor be over here. Let your favor be on the man of your right hand, verse 18, because I believe that when your favor is on the man of your right hand, it'll change things. It'll change us. You will give us life when that happens, and we will call you our God. So Asaph is reaching out for God's mercy by faith. Faith in whom? Well, it's not faith in himself. I mean, he's already laid out his track record. I got a bad track record for being a righteous person and keeping this covenant relationship with you. So he's not, he's reaching out in faith, but it's not faith in himself, is it? Who? He says, faith in the man of your right hand, the son of man in whom you have strengthened for yourself, for your own glory and praise and honor, okay? So who's that? Well, unfortunately, that phrase, the man of your right hand, as far as I could see, uh, find out, it's not used anywhere else in Scripture except right here. It's a real unique phrase. So we don't need to get any help from there. However, being at the right hand, that's a phrase that's used all the way from Genesis through Revelation. It's used everywhere. It's a phrase of meaning having God's power, God's favor, God's blessing, his anointing on your life. It is a position of privilege, and it's a position of power. It's a very special place. I think Asaph is referring to the king. So we know that the king in Israel's day was appointed by God to lead his people. God chose him, he anointed him, lead my people, it's my kingdom, go. You're like my vice regent on earth, representing me, okay? And so here's the deal. As went the king, so went the kingdom. As with the king, so went the people. Their destiny, in other words, was bound up in their king, the one that God had appointed. His, his job was to keep that covenant relationship with God, and the people would be blessed because they'd go, oh, our, our leader's going that way. We'll follow him, and they will be blessed. So we get a little bit of help with this back if we go, we go back to Deuteronomy 17, this whole man of God's right hand. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15. So when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you and you possess it and dwell in it and then you, you're going to say this. God's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you perfectly. You're, like, you're already going to say this. Heads up. You'll say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
You'll set a king over you, but it'll be the one that the Lord God chooses. And, I'm, and you go home and read the rest of that. It talks about who this king is and what he's going to do. But this is like super king. Like, this is not like an ordinary king. When you read that, he's saying God is going to set up a king of his own choosing, and he is going to be blessed by God and have the power of God. He is going to be the man of God's right hand, in other words. So Asaph is saying in Psalm 80, Lord, look, Lord, I know that there is going to be a king of your choosing, one that has your favor, one that has your pleasure. He pleases you in every way that you're going to strengthen because he pleases you in every way. I know that's coming because you told me back in the law. You told me back in Deuteronomy, and I'm remembering that. He's coming to his senses, right? He's going all of a sudden going back to God's word. So I know you're going to do that with this king, and I'm putting my faith in him. I believe that you will restore me for his sake. Somehow my destiny is bound up in that king's destiny so that his blessings become my blessings. When your favor rests on him, somehow that's gonna rest on me because what good is a king without a kingdom to rule? Brothers and sisters, we have that king in Christ Jesus. What Asaph saw from afar, just a little outline, we see clearly in the face of Jesus Christ, the king has come. We belong to his kingdom, to his city, and we know that we won't waste away under his good rule. Jesus is the man of God's right hand who perfectly kept the covenant that you and I cannot keep. And he is a good and righteous king. He's so good. Not only does he keep the, co the covenant perfectly, he turns neither to the right nor to the left, but is always in his mouth and always in his mind, right? Not only does he do that, but he bears, our king bears the punishment for breaking it that we couldn't possibly bear. It would wipe us out if we tried to bear that punishment. Well, he bears that. You see, Jesus was the true and better vine. Is that not what he says in John 15, verse one? I am the true vine and my father is that vine dresser. Jesus is the true and better vine that was cut not merely to the stump by his enemies, but cut completely off from the Father at the cross. It says he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? So that you and I, when we are actually experiencing the disciplining hand of God, we know that we will not be cut off from God. Our king was cut off. He's not punishing us. He's disciplining us. He's saying, come back to me. We who are covenant breakers are assured that he will not break that with us. This is the gospel, guys. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet that the Bible also says that he was raised back to life in his body. To use the psalmist's words, God strengthened the son of man. Why? So that we could also know beyond a shadow of a doubt because we get kind of doughty, don't we, when we're disciplined so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have put our faith in the right king. He is the king of God's own choosing, and there is not another. I know it for sure. I know it real for real, because he came back to life. God wasn't really mad at him. He was just punishing sin. He's alive, and he's sitting on his throne at the right hand of the Father right now, making intercession for us. Jesus is the one that truly, really, actually, fully pleases God in every way. But, but Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through the spirit 
who dwells in you. When we are being disciplined by God, we pray in faith, by faith in Jesus, not in us, not in our track record, in his track record. He is the one in whom God is fully pleased. Therefore, God is pleased with us if we are in him. So his blessings are our blessings. What he got, we get. We are to boldly ask God to restore us and give us life, to bring us back to our king. We're to pray believing that God will give us life because guess what? He, he gave Jesus life, like real, actual life, not like his spirit was raised, like his body was raised and you could like see it and touch it. It wasn't a figment of our imagination. This is not some religious belief. This is a historical fact. That's why the resurrection matters to us so much because these are the times that we need it. Jesus will give us life because he gave his son life and we belong to him. We're united to him through faith. This is how we pray our way through God's discipline. Oh Lord, turn my heart back to you. Oh Lord, turn your face toward me. Help me live again. I believe that I'm united to the one that has your favor and I have your favor. This is how we're to pray, brothers and sisters. I love you guys. Let's pray. Oh God, we love you so much. We thank you for, for loving us and showing us not only your holiness but also your mercy through Jesus Christ. God, I pray um, there's some of us, maybe we are experiencing your hand of discipline. We're just bullheaded right now. We just are. We're just presuming upon your kindness. We're presuming upon your mercy. But you say in Romans, do you not know that the kindness of the Lord is to lead you to repentance? So Lord, would you turn our hearts back to you? because we can't do that ourselves. Oh, Lord, would you turn your face towards us? Help us live again. Help our lives flourish. Help us be in love with you again. And we thank you, dear God. We thank you for Jesus, King Jesus, who's pleased you in every way. And he is in us, and we are in him, and so we get what he gets. And because of him, we get your favor. Because of you, we get mercy. Because of you, we get life right now and life from the dead. And so, Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Oh, Lord, draw us to you. Soften our hearts. Turn us to you. And we will live. We will live. It's in your name we pray. Amen.